Welcome back to the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of the show's sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Online Mentorship is 20 hours of top-class strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Next, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and Altus Education, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Next, I want to give a shout out to Joseph Johnson at Ultimate Alley Concepts. Ultimate Alley Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Alley Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation material. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available, Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft, Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming, Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore, and Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all of the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beef's, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, head over to the show notes to get the links to all of the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus360 and Altus Education, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before we get into today's interview, I just wanted to let all the listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel that you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you'd be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into today's show. This episode's guest is Dr. Ian Dunican from sleepforperformance.com. Ian has over 20 years of international professional experience in health, safety, and improvement within military, mining, rail, oil and gas, and utilities. His work draws on his background in the military, the resources sector, utilities, rail industries, and with elite sporting organizations. Ian has worked with major mining companies to develop fatigue risk management strategies and systems requiring the quantification, analysis, and interpretations of multiple data streams to support health, safety, financial strength, and productivity. Ian has led and guided projects all over the world in places such as Mozambique, South Africa, Canada, the United States, Australia, and Mongolia. Ian is currently the director of Melius Consulting and Sleep for Performance and has recently completed a PhD with the University of Western Australia, where he worked with elite sporting organizations and athletes to optimize performance. Ian is highly sought after with professional athletes working with Olympic elite athletes with the Australian Institute of Sport, AIS, and professional teams in Super Rugby, Basketball, Australian Rules Football, and Martial Arts. On this episode, Ian and I discuss Ian's background. I asked Ian, how did he get into working with coal mining? I asked Ian, how did he get into sleep research? I asked Ian to share with us strategies to decrease jet lag. 
I asked Ian about entraining athletes' body clocks to the time that they're going to compete at. And I also asked Ian about chronotypes and sports performance. Guys, this is part one of a two-part series for Dean, and I hope you really enjoy this first part. Ian, my man, we're recording. Thank you so much for making time for me, for my, for my morning and your evening. So just for the listeners who mightn't be too familiar who we are, give us a rundown on the background, my man. Yeah, Robbie. So um, thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm here in the future in Australia, approximately seven or eight <laughs> hours ahead uh, of um, Ireland. I can tell you, Robbie, that today is not the end of the world. Uh, the sun is setting here and all is well. Um, now, some of your listeners might be listening to this and going, wow, he sounds very Irish for an Australian guy. Maybe he's one of those people who puts on an accent when he talks to an Irish guy. But I hail from the little town of Athlone, right in the middle of Ireland, halfway between Dublin and Galway. Some people refer to it as the heart of Ireland. I used to always refer to it as the shithole of Ireland. But anyway, <laughs> that's, where I, <laughs> that's, where I, that's where I grew up and um, made some bad names for myself. And, uh, Don't yeah, send the hate mail to me, people from that long. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I, I was home a few years ago and people were like, what are you doing now? I'm, I'm living in a tropical paradise while you stay here, surrounded by the River Shannon and grey buildings. But anyway, I'm heading off on Monday. <laughs> so I've been here, Robbie, for about 17 years now uh, in Western Australia. Yeah, my wife is Australian. Uh, prior to moving over here, I spent some time in the uh, Irish Army, mm. uh, the formidable force that it is. Did about five years there and then decided to leave and, and pursue other goals. I ended up working in the mining industry for about uh, 10 or 12 years over here in health and safety and project management roles. Ended up in a global advisor role for the world's second largest company, uh, Rio Tinto doing global advisor for human performance and fatigue along the way i got my bachelor of arts in education uh training and development uh master's in business master's in engineering and a graduate certificate in sleep science in the last sort of time at that company and then over the last 10 years i've been delving into the area of fatigue risk management and sleep science um uh, I did my PhD with the University of Western Australia, also in conjunction with the Australasian, Australian Institute of Sport, where we worked with combat and contact athletes, because outside of my work, I have a keen interest in jiu-jitsu and my jiu-jitsu brown belt mm. here in Western Australia. Uh, I also have partaken in ultramarathon events running up to 170 kilometers at altitude, so I'm quite keen on performance, and I'm now training to do some long-distance ocean swimming up to about 10 to 20 kilometers, so... Uh, I kind of like to push the limits outside of work as well, um, and then in, turn, in, in work sort of around research and business. These days, since completing my PhD, I've got three kind of buckets I work on, Robbie, which is one is I keep doing research um, through adjunct roles, working with some PhD students in industry and in sports, uh, with the University of Western Australia, now with Murdoch and ECU, Ida Cowan Uni. Uh, I have an online platform, which is non-for-profit, which has a podcast, uh, blogs and ebooks that's free called Sleep for Performance. That's the number four. And um, everything on there is free. We've got some ambassadors joining that program as well. Uh, you may know uh, Danny Lennon from Sigma Nutrition. Of course. Uh, he's going to be one, one of the ambassadors there as well. So Danny's going to be helping us pump out the info. And we've got people in the States, uh, South Africa, and so on, and Australia. Um, so that's going to be growing in 2019 we're on season three of our podcast there's about 40 odd episodes up there between ep interviews and audio abstracts and so on and then the last thing i do robbie um which is where mainly where my money comes from is uh, a company called melius consulting 
and we consult in health, safety, and improvement. So we're very much a niche type organization that comes in and helps uh, businesses solve problems. So there are the three different things I do. So my days are very varied, which is awesome. Today, I've been wearing shorts and t-shirt, a suit, back into shorts and t-shirt, back into a suit, back into shorts and t-shirt, and then I'll go to the swimming pool in about two hours and be in swimming togs. So, you know, I'm, uh, I'm like a supermodel here, constantly changing my clothes all day. Um, and jumping in now of all those different domains. And, I, and I, I really love it. You know, I've been lucky in some respect, but I've, I've worked really hard over the last 20 years to uh, develop my sort of expertise through education, working on different projects around the world, uh, meeting some great people. And my overarching thing is just about improving, uh, improving the world by sort of telling people the message of sleep and how it can help them. And do you like speak any languages or play any instruments? Like, what the fuck else do you do? As a uh, poquito, hablo uh, uh, poquito español, señor. Lo siento, <laughs> no estudio español por dos años. Love it. I can Love count it. to ten. In, I can count to ten in Japanese. I can sing a little song in Japanese. I can speak a little bit of Spanish. I know enough words to get me uh, into trouble in Germany. Um, but but yeah, Robbie. That, like for me, it's not about an accumulation of accolades or doing different things. I just get interested and fascinated with all sorts of shit, really, to be honest with you. And that's yeah. what happens. Listen, you know, I just get down these. You're, you're preaching to the choir here. We're both like, so I always say I'm, I'm a fucking universal man. Like, you know, I always make that sound. Sorry to cut across you. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's something I'm getting better at. Not, not hopping in. I did it there though. But yeah, I always <laughs> joke like, you know, I originally got into the strength conditioning field and then that kind of gets you into the rehab field, which gets you into the nutrition and then you get into the functional yeah. medicine and then you get into the spirituality stuff and the human de- development and human behavior and then child yeah, development yeah. psychology. And then like, you just keep opening all these fucking doors and you go down all these rabbit holes. And then at the end of it, you just get spit out the back end and yeah. you just like, you just kind of like flabbergasted. You're like, oh, what the hell just happened there? And then you just kind of stand up and turn around and go, holy fuck, it's the universe. It's all connected. <laughs> yeah, it's actually quite overwhelming. Like, and people have said to me, oh, do you feel like you've kind of met it now by, you know, you're sort of in your 40s now. You've done all these things. Are you going to slow down? I'm like, you know what? I've got to speed up. Speed because up. It's, the, it's the opposite of the Dunning-Kruger curve. It's like the more I realize... The more I try to learn, the more I realize I don't know. And I get, I get nearly anxious about it and I start reading all different things. And um, I want to try as many different things as I can. Um, in some ways, I, I, I wish, you know, I didn't even start. And I just sat on the couch and drank beer and went on the dole because I've sort of led my way down this path where it's, it can be quite frustrating. Um, but also, I've been really lucky um, to get myself into this position where I can do all these crazy different things. And, um, but I think also because I'm doing these crazy different things, I'm really happy. And then I get to work on different things and people kind of get attracted to that because you're energized and enthusiastic about it and enthusiastic or enthusiastic about it because you're not, you know, bored to fucking death in a cubicle every day, just tapping away on a keyboard, you know? And, um, so I find it quite liberating. I can do whatever I want. Um, and every day I get up and do that, I, I, I am thankful for that. You know, I don't want to get the old, like, oh, I'm grateful for everything. But I am actually pretty grateful that I get to do all these um, interesting things, um, you know, in my life. Yeah, well, we were speaking about sort of gratitude before we hopped online. But a kind of a, a saying that comes to my mind is, you know, happy but never satisfied. Like, you know, you're happy and fulfilled, but you're always more curious to know more. Yeah. Like, you're like, there's more to learn. I got to keep going. Yeah, so. Yeah. A question I know, I if you went to school. Oh, Sorry, go Robbie, go just, no, go just, just to finish off on that point, if you went to school with me, or if you're listening to this and you went to school with me, you go, that tick shy. He did nothing in school. <laughs> he did nothing. He was more, he was more, 
you know, worried about playing rugby, smoking cigarettes out the back of the shed, trying to be a tough guy and working his part-time job in a bar, which is all true. But I think the problem is with school is, is that you push down these pipes of told what to learn, when to learn that, and there's no yeah. discovery. And so once you're free of that kind of structure, then you can go and choose your own adventure. Uh, and not that I'm knocking school, but I think for me, it was never suitable. Where the minute I left school, the acquisition of knowledge, because it was self-directed, was such a good thing. So mm. probably for some younger people, if you're struggling at school and you're not, and you're not too off, you're not too happy with it. Don't worry about it. You know, you can you can find your way in different ways. Um, you know, going to secondary school um, in any country is not the be all and end all. So, yeah. Yeah. but here again, you're preaching to the choir. I didn't even do my junior cert, let alone my leaving cert. So that's another thing too. Uh, you were one of those shed guys, with Tommy Tiernan on the shed, on the shed, on the shed. Yeah, I was, I was, I was cool as fuck. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Here, I'd like, like to think. I know, I know. Me too. Sure. This is we're all we're all like warped by our own perceptions, aren't we? <laughs> it's like that. You know those 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 comedy pictures they show like that when the man looks in the mirror and he sees he's fat like and he sees the muscle yeah, man yeah, yeah. and the woman and the woman and she's real skinny and she sees the fat woman. You know. Yeah. Um, you know, guided by our own perceptions. But it's a question I've, I've always wanted to ask you as he flexes. Um, is mining? How did you get into the mining? That was a bizarre. It's because it's kind of when I listened to your podcast with Danny, you're like, yeah, you know, I was in the army in Ar- or in 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 Ireland. Then they just went to mine in Australia. It's like, whoa, what the fuck happened? <laughs> what happened here between that and that? That's cool. So, go, just tell us about that. About that transition, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it wasn't like the Gulag Archipelago. I wasn't sent off to a camp or anything. But um, it actually happened by accident, Robbie. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting because uh, my wife is from. Uh, outside of Melbourne in, in Victoria, the state of Victoria in Australia. So she's from uh, a town called Warrnambool. She lived in Melbourne predominantly. Anyway, she came to Ireland. We met in Ireland. Then we went backpacking around Europe and Africa. And it just so happened that the flight from Johannesburg stopped in Perth and then went from Perth to Brisbane, right? There was another flight we had to change. So we were going to go and live in Brisbane. Um, my wife had just lived about two, three hours outside of there for the previous five years before she came to Ireland. She was like, let's go back to that part of the world. I was like, great, let's go. So we were in Johannesburg and my wife gets a message on Facebook or email, whatever it was back in 2002 or three, three, I think it was about, oh, my friend Emma is living in Perth. Our flight stops in Perth. Shall we stop off for a few days and hang out with Emma? I was like, yeah, let's do that. And then we'll go to Brisbane. So we arrived here in Western Australia, not knowing really, you know, what it was like for me people always like oh western australia is a desert it's mega hot we arrived here in july the depths of winter it was about 14 degrees and pissing fucking rain and i was like this isn't australia when i've been to australia before in sydney it was like 35 degrees this is miserable so anyway i hung out we hung out for a few days we decided to stay because we opened up the paper and we saw lots and lots of jobs in the mining industry so western australia is a massive state it's way bigger than texas Americans won't like that, but it's true. I think Texas fits inside here about nine or ten times. It's massive. You know, it takes about five hours to fly the length of the state. Um, and so there's lots of mining around the state from iron ore to uranium to, well, not uranium, it's banned, sorry, but um, iron ore to diamonds to coal to bauxite to all sorts of properties. And so in that, we saw lots of opportunities for health and safety. My wife came out of the, my wife has an undergraduate degree in applied science, human movement, so like exercise physiology. So she was thinking about maybe doing some work in mining around health. In the health and safety roles, a lot of the roles wanted people who had a background in training, military, all that sort of stuff. So um, 
a lot of people in health and safety back then, particularly, there was no uni degree you could do, do for or they were just starting it. Most people um, were ex-military, they were trainers, teachers, or people who come out of other health and science disciplines. So I was like, wow, this is actually really cool to do. I'm, I, this would be a good, good role for me. I've always been interested in this, and particularly on the, the health side and the performance side too. This might be a good way, because I was also a personal trainer in Ireland. This might be a good way of um, you know, developing a career here. Because um, I was initially thinking about going and doing civil engineering at uni here and doing something completely different or being a tradie. And um, anyway, so started uh, doing some work with a consultancy company that was doing some security consulting, doing some training, first aid, given my military background. Then we were contracted to a mining company. And then the mining company actually asked me, would you like to come and work for us? But you would have to live remotely, um, sort of two hours flight away from the city. But we'll provide housing. Um, you know, we'll pay for your water, all that sort of stuff. So we thought this was a great way to save a lot of money mm. and get started. And um, so we off we went. My wife ended up getting a job for the same company. I did my undergraduate degree online while I was working up there as well. Uh, my my uh, employer paid for that, which was great. And then I just sort of, as I got my degree and went through and did everything, I just sort of snowballed from there, really, and, and stayed in mining there for about 10 years with that company. And then ended up working across the world with them, uh, based out of parts, but worked in Canada, US, Asia, Africa. And it was great. Like it was, it was, it was a great time. People said, join the army and see the world. Well, I joined a mining company and saw the world and got paid really well for it. So, mm. you know, it was, it was an awesome, an awesome time. And I really got to cut my teeth in the health and safety arena um, and into the fatigue, human performance stuff. And the business also paid for me to do an MBA. Um, so it was awesome. So I, I was really lucky, but I, I worked hard for and, and traveled a lot and spent a lot of time away. But um, it was a great start to my career and a great way to delve into it. I got so infatuated then with mining as well and really enjoyed the improvement side of it. I would jump into some um, health and, not, not just health and safety improvements, but also business improvements and end up doing a master's in mining engineering as well because um, I really like that as well, which actually all kind of ties back to what I do now, Robbie, because when I go into a mining company now, you know, a lot of times we'll talk about sleep science or health and safety things. And it's really good because now I can go in and articulate the rationale behind it, talk about the data from a safety perspective or a compliance, but also now I can plug that into the production data, how that works within the organization because I understand how it works from an engineering point of view. And also having that MBA background, I can talk about marketing, economics, and costs. And so I've really kind of developed myself into this kind of niche area where consultants in my area are generally kind of focused on one or the other. I'm able to tie a lot of those things together um, and I was just out chasing interest, really. And then I've kind of got myself into this. That's kind of a long answer to your question about how I got into mining. But really, it was being in the location. You know, it's kind of like if you moved to Texas, you'd probably get into oil and gas because it's such, mm. such part of the economy. And there's so many subsidiary businesses off that as well. So um, mining is massive here in Western Australia. It drives the economy here. So that's, that's really why. And there's money in it. And it's good. I like it. Yeah, little did you know stepping off that plane on the, the the 14 degrees wet day that this is going to be the future oh Robbie I often I remember like you know there was times I was in places like you know sitting at a an executive type meeting and with a, with a bunch of people on different committees were, that were small different companies and I'd be sitting there in a suit and people would ask me a question and I'd have that surreal moment like you're asking me I failed my leaving cert and I used to be in the army lying in a fucking ditch covered in rainwater, you know, hung over. And, you know, I'd have that moment. And then I would stop and go, well, good point. But, and, da, da, da. and so 
sometimes you would feel like kind of a fraud doing it, but um, when you look back on it, it you know, th- those 20 years go really quick. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. And it's, yeah, you get some of those kind of surreal moments or I did a Ted talk last year at TEDx talk, TEDx Perth. And that was really one of those kind of points where I was like, wow, I cannot believe I'm standing here. There was 2000 people in the, in the concert wow. hall. And I stood there and I was like, man, this is, this is crazy. Like it was awesome, but also nerve wracking to stand there and be able to talk to people and engage people and give a talk and to be, to get through to that process just to get on that stage and then to get so much good feedback afterwards. And, you know, it was just absolutely like it was better than any drug I think you could do. So, you know, there's some of those moments in my life where I have to stop and pinch myself or I see myself on TV or radio and it's like, man, it's like looking at, at, at a character you're playing, you know, it's like you're playing double dragon in the, in the arcade and you're just going, who the fuck is this? You know? Do you like, does it talk, does it talk them into your head? Like if only these people knew. <laughs> like, yeah, but like, I think. Uh, like the wizard yeah, of Oz, like the wizard of Oz, like I'm just like, <laughs> like behind like, these people. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, a lot of people, I, I spoke to a lot of um, people who, you know, would be successful and using air quotes in their relative, in their relevant fields or relative yeah. fields. And, a lot of people have that. I know a lot of people like it's called, it's guys. Called imposter, are, it's called imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome, yeah. A lot of people have it, and people that I've really admired, and and some, you know, elite athletes that play at the top level, internationally. That we would, I could drop their names here, and people would know them probably in Ireland and in Australia. They've said the same thing. Yeah. They, you know, or MMA fighters that I've worked with. You know, they're just like fuck. Like, what am I doing in here? Like, or other people in businesses or CEOs are like, yeah, I feel like that. I'm like, who am I to say this? Um, and I think that's what makes people good, Robbie, because I think it kind of, I think when you start getting a bit smarmy and you, you start thinking like you know it all or you're going to kill people, you know, like it's, and you're, 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 you're awesome. It's when you get a slap in the face. And I found this in jujitsu, actually. In jujitsu, I come in some days and I'm like, oh yeah, you know, I got my brown belt. I'm feeling really good. I mean, leg lock and everybody, I've been doing this, I've been doing that. And I get my ass handed to me because the universe just goes, all right, dickhead, boom, and wallops it back on top of me. You know, so I think uh, you got to stay a bit humble. You got to keep learning. You got to keep moving, and um, yeah, because I think if you don't, the world is going to come down on top of you. All right. Well, sure. People who who have any idea of who you were before they downloaded this and started listening to it, obviously, are like, well, they must have spoken about sleep. So let's get into sleep. <laughs> What <laughs> like at this book? What like at this book? Because <laughs> I, I know nothing about this stuff. Hold on. Hold on. No, I pick up these papers. Why we sleep? Actually, by, why we sleep by Matthew Walker? Where is it? Here, here, Robbie. Uh, this, this will, this will give you a laugh because this is actually holding my laptop up as it drops. Uh, you can see this. That nice big book. Ah, uh, the Prince of Sleep. I, I have it as a PDF, but I don't have the. Physical have you? Book. You must. Have, you must. You must have got it illegally because it's about six hundred dollars that book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, that's holding up my laptop today. So there you go. That's going to good use. So just for the listeners, his book there on sleep. What was it? what was the official sleep medicine? Was it the principles and practices? Principles and practices of sleep medicine. Yeah, yeah. it's a big massive book, about five hundred dollars. But it holds up my laptop at the moment. It's, fu- it's funny. It's funny because if, if I was propping up my own, it's exercise physiology by McCarroll Catch and Catch. So that that's his prop <laughs> up my own. It's gas that we have our two textbooks. But yeah, uh, so oh, is, that, is, that, is, that, is that this book, Robbie? Here, it's which which edition is that? Uh, I think it's my wife's edition. Mine's um, the fifth. Ooh, it used to be it used to be owned by somebody called Amber Hill. <laughs> Maybe my wife stole that from Amber Hill. Let me see what year this is. I'd say this is probably around circa nineteen ninety. Um, yeah, nineteen ninety one. 
Yeah. Turns out, Robbie, the body is still the same. To, to be honest, it's funny you say that because I'm, I'm, the one I'm reading there now is the fifth edition and it's 2001, so it's 17 years old. And like, while, while like the, the physiology and all is still solid, like the nutritional recommendations are just like, oh, Lord. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, you know, everything in every, I swear to God, everything in it is like saturated fat's going to blow your fucking heart to bits. So even though like uh, even though I know that pendulum swung completely the way where people are like putting in sticks of butter into their fucking coffee now and all this, but anyway, as Rob, you when I grew up in, when I when I grew up in Ireland in the eighties, if you had more than two eggs in the week, your you, my dad was going to drive me to the hospital because he, if oh, you had more Lord. than two eggs, you were going to have a fucking heart attack. So there you go. It's gas. And then you tried to convince them, but they're like, listen, if they wiped your arse, they're never going to listen to you. But come here anyway. Let's get into this sleep. So, what got you into sleep? What got you fascinated around? Because I, I personally am fascinated. I've been fascinated for about eight years. Because just before I let you answer, there is from my own health standpoint, like <clears throat> about 2010, 2011, I was just waking up with rotten fatigue, like, and didn't know what was going on. I'm only like 23 at the time, whatever. And um, I was just wondering what's going on. Because I'm still sleep. I was like, I sleep seven hours, blah, blah. but like I was literally going to bed at midnight, getting up, well, eleven, getting up at six. But I'd be looking at me screen like right before it and all this. So that put me down the whole research rabbit hole of circadian rhythms. And once I sorted out like my sleep hygiene, so like you know, dark room, cool room, you know, no artificial light and all that. Uh, like my, I could not believe the energy. Like I got, I, I was like hopping around the place. I got addicted to sleep then. I'm still addicted to it. Like, but like it was just unbelievable. So since 2010. I've just been addicted or addicted. I've been obsessed with um, sleep and circadian rhythm research and just, you know, studying circadian rhythms and studying sleep. And, you know, so there's so many people like, I mean, there's yourself, I mean, and Danny Lennon too, and me, you know, we'd be very aware of, you know, Dan Pardee's work. There's Matthew Walker yeah. who recently wrote his book. There's also Dr. Kurt Parsley, Sean Stevenson came out with a book. Like it seems, uh, uh, T.S. Wiley was like one of the originals with our Lights Out book. Yeah, back that's a brilliant hours. book. Lights Out. That is an awesome book for the general population. If she, got slated, in- she got slated for that book though. Like everyone was like, book- that book is is brilliant, Robbie. That's my rec- that's my. If people ask me about my recommendation, I always say T.S. Wiley lights out. Get that book. It's so easy to read. It's so mm. informative. It's it's heavy on the science, but it, it reads only like a novel. Yeah, it's written so well. It's not like you're going to be reading a sec a, a, um, a text kind of scientific text. It's so good. It's it's such a good book. I cannot recommend that enough. If you can get your hands on a copy of that, people, please do. Yeah, and then like uh, Jack Cruz's work, uh, you know, is also very prominent too in, in regards to circadian biology. But so my question here to you in this very long-winded format, like what got you interested in sleep? Was Hello, it, oh, Robbie. Oh, oh, are we gone? Are we back? All right, so in, in this in this long-winded, we, but just for listeners, we lost each other there. So if, because if, I fucking hate editing podcasts, so if it sounded a bit funny there, it's because it's our Wi-Fi hopped around. Again, first world problems. But anyway, listen, get into this answer here. What got you fascinated with, with sleep? Um, yeah, well, I suppose the first part about was, it was actually a business problem. I've been working in this sort of health and safety and improvement thing as we spoke about earlier on. And um, it was actually a business problem around fatigue management and managing and of, the, of uh, shifts and rosters and fly and fly out from these remote mines. Mm. That was part of it. Um, that kind of got me into the, the catalyst in the business. But before that, I had an interest in my own sleep around recovery, optimization as I was getting older and all these different components of human performance. So I always had a kind of a, a bit of an interest in it. Um, but it was really uh, the first big catalyst to get delving into it was actually a business problem. 
Um, and that's what sparked it. And once that started, then it sort of snowballed from there. And like yourself, then I started speaking to experts, uh, working for a big company, people kind of opened up their doors to you because they think there's going to be work out of it for them. <laughs> so um, I was able to speak to a lot of experts around the, around the world. Um, and then also, which a lot of people don't know, I actually had a crack at a PhD back in 2010, 11, and 12 with Harvard University and Monash University in Australia, where I was trying to investigate um, you know, workplace fatigue, sleep disorders, and the effect on productivity, but just due to a whole host of factors that kind of fell over. Um, mm. It's very hard to do a PhD whilst you're working in a company and collect Absolutely. kind of company data, so it's, it's kind of difficult. Um, so yeah, I just it just kind of snowballed. Man, I I don't I don't really know, you know, um, because if you asked me twenty years ago in Ireland or twenty five years ago, would you like to be a sleep scientist? I'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? What what is that? Wait, go away from me, like you know, I'm I'm going to the army and run around and shoot things, and um, you know, uh, so I didn't even, you know, it gets into that whole thing about free will and determination, but I, I don't know, man. It just kind of, sort of really piqued my interest, and I got into it. And I like the the links into other aspects of of biology and productivity and economics and finance, like I said earlier before. So I just kind of get, I don't know, I got fascinated with it. I, I don't really know. I just find it um, a really interesting subject, you know, <laughs> and, and not too many people are looking at it from a performance point of view as well. How do the companies that you consult with, like how do they react to when, you know, you're sort of, one of your major, I, I'm assuming one of your, your major recommendations is to, you know, make sure that you're, you're like they, themselves as owners and their employees improve their sleep for improved performance. Like, do they kind of like really sleep? Yeah, it's interesting, Rob, because we talk about two things, organizational um, issues and then individual issues. So uh, the same applies to a sports team. If you have a sports team that's traveling around the world constantly um you know, in super rugby or even if you've got a team and say the US is flying back and forth, East Coast to West Coast constantly, if you design that schedule really bad in terms of flying times and, you you know, people are going to incur jet lag or you don't have a system to identify people with sleep disorders or you're not allowing adequate rest and recovery after travel for next day training or after a game, if all those things aren't in place from the organization, you can't keep banging on the heads of the individuals to recover quicker. So what you set up and what you design is what you get. Yeah. And it's the same with the companies as well. We've got to talk about how we design the shifts and rosters um, when people start, how we get people on board into the business with pre-employment medicals and so on. Now, for some people, it's kind of like, Jesus, that's a lot of stuff to do. Um, so some of it is about the education process around it. So a lot of times when I get calls from clients in the fatigue risk management space, they know they have a problem, but they don't know what they want to do. Yeah. So we have to kind of go in and sit with them and, you know, either sift through data, talk to them, or do some modeling work to show them what potentially is the problem, which can be quite difficult. Um, but it can be a range of those things. And then we kind of make a plan based upon their need to address those um, those challenges. So it can be quite varied for every company. It's not a one-size-fits-all. It depends on location, their population, what they're trying to achieve, you know, what their business strategy is, what their hours of work are, geographic location. Like it just, the list goes on and on and on. Um, so a lot of it is about educating them as well. Uh, one of the good things now, particularly in the mining industry, is that people are getting more educated in this. Um, and so I think 15 years ago, people would have just rolled their eyes at this subject. But now people are trying to use it strategically to make their business better. And for a number of reasons. Number one is, even if you don't care about sort of health and safety of people, the Deloitte Access Economics here in Australia did a massive um, 
report looking at the economics of sleep disorders and lost sleep. And so basically, uh, sleep is a massive problem in our Western society here in Australia. And approximately $4,000 per annum is lost per employee or $26 billion in lost productivity mm. due to lack of sleep. And so that could be people just not being at work, being present, but not actually working or people taking time off because they're fatigued from shift work. Um, you know, whatever it may be, uh, there's a whole host of reasons behind that. Yeah. I mean, sure. Like it's fairly well established now that like being in a, in a sleep deprived state is just as bad as being like drunk in terms of your abilities. Mm. But uh, I heard you speak as well before uh, with Daniel on Sigma Nutrition Podcast, which I'll have linked up in the show notes with everything else we've mentioned so far. You've done a bit of work um, around trying to decrease the detrimental impact of um, you know, crossing time zones and, and, and you know, uh, flying and, and whatnot. So could you maybe get into that too? What sort of recommendations would you give to individuals who do have regular sort of um, trips on, on planes and flights and crossing multiple time zones? What, what sort of strategies would you maybe recommend? Yeah, just before we jump onto that, I just want to make a note, Robbie, on your last comment about sleep deprived and like being alcohol. So for listeners who may not be aware, being awake continuously for 17 hours is like being intoxicated to 0.05%. So your reaction time, your decision-making is similar to people at 0.05%. If you're awake for 24 hours, it's similar to being intoxicated to 0.08%. Um, and I talk about that in my TEDx talk in Perth. So I'm sure you'll have that in the show notes as well. It's only nine minutes. That goes into more detail on that as well. Um, on your next point about your point about jet lag. So a few kind of um, basic facts about jet lag is that jet lag only occurs when you cross time zones uh, east to west. So as you look at the map in front of you, if you're kind of traveling left to right, uh, you fly from Dublin to New York or Dublin to uh, Singapore, for example, or Dubai, you're crossing across time zones. For every time zone you cross, it may take you approximately one day to get used to that time zone. Going east is more difficult than going west. Um, you may have better adaptation flying west than you will east. Um, and so it can be those kind of factors are, are instrumental in the, in the scheduling of flights for somebody trying to minimize jet lag. Also as well, if you fly north to south or within the same time zone, so for example, if you fly from London to Johannesburg, it's more or less in the same time zone, maybe a one-hour shift, you will not have jet lag. You may be tired from being on the plane. You may have flown overnight, so you may be sleep deprived, but you will not have jet lag. Jet lag only occurs when you have circadian disruption from flying across different time zones due to the suprachiasmatic nucleus in your brain being disrupted from the light and dark cycle. So that's, that's really important. In general, <clears throat> we would recommend a whole host of strategies for each individual. Um, or a group, depending on which way they're going, right? So in, in, like, generally, we would say, if you're going this way, do this. If you're going west, do that. But it all depends on the timing of the flight. It also depends on when you want to be on. So for example, if you're flying from Dublin to New York and you want to hit the ground running, you arrive at 6 o'clock in the morning, the first day is really important because you've got a series of meetings, then the strategy is quite different than arriving at six in the morning and not having to work until the next day. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, we manipulate things like light and dark cycles through the use of um, sunglasses 
or blockout blinds or any way we can. We also advise on caffeine, alcohol, and hydration. And they're the biggest things we do in transit. And then before that, we may look to shift somebody onto that time zone before they travel. So, you know, we would try to, if you were going to New York, we would try to keep you up probably later in the evening to try and get onto a New York schedule because they're, you know, four or five hours behind you in Dublin. And do you use any strategies with meal timings in? Yes, we do use meal times. Uh, on one of the podcast episodes, my own podcast, <clears throat> I interviewed Shauna Halston, who you may have heard before, another podcast from the AIS. Um, myself and Shauna have done research together. Shauna and Louise Burke have just um, released a paper on, and it was another lady as well, I can't remember her name, so apologies there, but um, on, on sort of nutritional interventions for jet lag. Uh, that paper came out last week, and they looked at timing of meals as well. Um, so I spoke to Shauna about that. Mainly it's about timing of the meals when you arrive at the new destination. So these are what we call um, zeitgeibers or time givers. And so you sort of eating on that new time zone is really important for adaptation. I think it's it's not just uh, eating at those times to get you onto a new schedule. It's also the cues we give ourselves Yeah. Um, in terms of the social cues, like it's time for dinner and so on. So uh, it's time for breakfast. Um, because we can get our meals sort of when people travel across time zones and they're not like, they're not kind of strategically trying to adjust to that time zone. They not only get their sleep out of sync, but they also get their meals out of sync. Um, because circadian disruption with that SCN that we spoke about, superchasmatic nucleus is the master time and clock for the body. Now that also sends signals to the rest of the body. So your heart, your lungs, digestive system, all have these peripheral clocks, which link back and they all operate on different cycles. And this has been well studied and well validated and well published about these. And so when you cross time zones and you're um, desynchronized, for want of a better word, then your whole sort of system is going to be out of whack. And that's why when you do fly and you go across time zones, you get hungry at weird times, your stomach is upset. You know, and we've all probably experienced this. You fly somewhere and you get off the plane, like, I'm really full. I don't want to eat. I'm just going to go and have a nap. 20 minutes later, then you're full of energy and you could eat about 15 cheeseburgers. So, you know, we get those crazy fluctuations with people as well. Um, so meal timing is definitely a factor more for the social cues, um, but also helps adaptation. So we, there's a range of strategies we use um, to get people adapted. To give you a bit of an idea, when we worked with an elite um, super rugby team here in Perth, West, Western Australia, called Western Force, we had them adapting to the new time zone within 24 hours because we looked at sleep before the flu. We looked at sleep on the flight. We looked at caffeine consumption, alcohol, hydration, meal timing, uh, scheduling of training times on arrival all in the um all with the goal to get people up to an effectiveness score of above 90 using our modeling to get people basically ready to rock when it came to game time yeah great stuff great stuff and um there's a question there pops into my head what was i gonna ask there oh yes uh just with athletes who compete late at night so like mma fighters and whatnot yeah like and yet you'd see they would complete like a car like the majority of their training like went up to the fight at sort of more you know daily regular times if you want to put it that way yeah. like would like to me and, and this is the question i want to ask it, it would seem to make a lot more sense to start 
uh, regulating or in training their clock to be able to perform when they're going to perform to, for their fight, which is going to be whatever, 9 p.m. or whatever at night. But yet they've yep. done the majority. They, they've taught their body to, you know, perform at like 4 p.m. or 5 p.m. in the evening. And so if you were, if you are, and I think you have been involved with a few fighters, would you start to strategically say, hey, listen, you need to start shifting your training a little bit later so it's going to mimic the time of the match. And, you know, these are the certain supplements and or nutritional protocols we're going to be using in around fight time. So we need to start integrating these into your training. Is, you know, is that something too that you see? Because another uh, sport too, well, it's a lot of sports. I mean, it's soccer, they've kickoffs at 8 p.m. during the week. And, yeah, yeah. And, 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 yeah. And NBA basketball, baseball yeah. players. I like yeah. it. I mean, we could get into a whole different conversation about performance versus health because obviously none of that is healthy if you're talking about longevity. But if these people want to perform to the best they can in terms of the sport that they're participating in, well, then it's a different conversation. So just in terms of, you know, optimizing strategies for performance at certain times, like what's your whole take on that? Yeah, it's a, it's a great point, Robbie. And I've spoken about this as well uh, previously. And some people kind of, you know, go against me and other people agree. But um, here's what the science will tell you is that um, what you're saying is exactly right. And a classic example, um, I don't know if you're, are you a fan of the UFC, Robbie, yourself? I, I'd, I'd be aware of it, but I wouldn't be huge into it. There's a, a fighter called Gunnar Nelson who hangs around there with Conor McGregor and the lads. Mm. He's a great grappler of Iceland. And I was watching some videos on him because I'm, I'm sort of, crazy deep into it and I, I love watching the sort of conditioning videos and so on and I've had Corey Peacock uh, on my podcast Corey Peacock works with the Black Sillians and works for um, well I think they're defunct now the Black Sillians but he works for a lot of um, elite MMA fighters in the States and mm. you know we've had this conversation too and to your point the answer is yes but how you do it is very interesting so what we have to do is uh, well to finish off my point on Gunnar Gunnar actually was doing this he was training in his videos leading up to the fight at like 10 o'clock at night because he was saying he wanted to replicate the time of the fight for the night. So getting his body used to that. And that's actually quite good from a psychological perspective, you know, practicing at the right time. So what we do, first of all, Robbie, is we look at what's called chronotype and chrono meaning time and, um, and, and the chronotypes. There's three different types of chronotypes. You've got larks who get up early in the morning and go to bed early. You've got the intermediates who get up at sort of a normal time, seven or eight and go to bed at 10 or 11. And then you've got the owls who like to go to bed late and get up late. Depending on the fight, if it's an evening fight, we want to push them more towards an owl chronotype. But sometimes the fights happen here in Australia and the fights actually occur at 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 a.m. in the morning because the fights have to be on for the U.S. market. So mm. it's interesting what way you have to push them. Do you push them late or do you push them early? But it's either one extreme or the other in general, right, at the elite levels. So what we would start doing then is we would say to people uh, during your training camp, whether it be six, eight, 10, 12 weeks out, we want to start now adapting you um, for this. And it's a bit like weight cutting. And we've done some work on weight cutting too. Um, uh, you kind of have to have a long-term plan. Uh, I've had a few fighters call me three days before a fight. Uh, how, why should, what should I do about my sleep? I'm like, well, you're kind of fucked now, you know, it's three days beforehand and you want to have, you know, this whiz-bing attitude um, to making yourself recover or guys do that with weight cutting as well. It's Monday, I need to be down 10 kilos by Friday. What should I do? Well, you should have rang me six weeks ago. So um, this is part of it as well. So you need to have a plan. The training then should be, uh, it should be achievable, obviously. So you'd work with the strength conditioning guys or the coaches around the workload, progressively increasing. Um, which you'll be aware of. Also as well, what's realistic? 
uh, if the guy um, or the, the girl fighting is a part-time employee, a full-time employee or a university student, there's no point in getting them up at four o'clock in the morning to go and run laps like Rocky, then send them off to university all day and then get them in for sparring that night because realistically you only get about six or seven hours of recovery between mm-hmm. all of that. It's not going to happen. And you get degradation in performance over time. You're just basically redlining them and they're going to get sick and most likely injured. Um, so we'd look at that as well in terms of scheduling and then we would start adapting them as well then to the night the nighttime practices so we gradually change them over the time um for for getting ready for that fight around that time and we'd start then in the weeks beforehand replicating sparring or other sort of high intensity activity around that time yeah yeah. for time poor athletes such as the university students and people working early morning starts are not recommended like you're better off getting one big good session in the evening after work as opposed to getting up at four or five in the morning because all you're doing there is you're eating into your recovery. And so when you look at the number one recovery modality in sport today, Robbie, it's sleep. Yeah. It is the biggest bang for your book. It's free. It's available. It does not discriminate unless you have a disorder, which can be easily managed with a physician and you can get back on track with that. So it is your biggest friend that you have. And this is what kind of works me about the Nike t-shirts to say, um, eat, sleep, train, and then to have sleep crossed out. Well, guess what, dickheads? That's the biggest thing that's going to allow you to adapt and overcome and get physically um, prepared for an event because it's just absolutely ridiculous. You compromise on sleep, it's just as bad as compromising on your strength and conditioning or your performance-based work. Yeah, I know. On Danny's podcast, you were like, you know, everyone's like, you know, get up early, you know, we beat the competition. Yeah. You're like, no, sleep in and win. Exactly. Yeah. Be, be, people are like, oh, yeah, he's out there working harder. Yeah, you're in here getting stronger. Like, Think about the long-term effect and the long-term value of what you're trying to do. And that's why I think like people like Gunny Nelson do stuff like that. Or if you look at McGregor leading up, leading up to the Jose Aldo fight, you know, you watch, I scoured loads of clips around uh, McGregor and he was going to bed at three o'clock in the morning and getting up at three o'clock in the mm-hmm. afternoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? What was he doing? He was adapting himself to that fight because I think his, like him being on the main event, the top of the card, he's going to be fighting at like 12 o'clock, one o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Yeah, you know, so stay in bed like for twelve hours, and then do your training during the day. It it should be all around that. Now I know he's probably at the luxury of having the finance to do that, but if you really want to be a fighter, you really want to get ready for these things. This is what you need to do. And tell me this. Um, so <clears throat> would would I be correct in thinking these two days, like you were saying, early in the morning, detriment? Pardon? Sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Uh, t- t- so just to summarize that thought there on, on in train, in, the entrainment of, um, you know, the correct circadian rhythm um, as it pertains to competition. So like would say like if we had an MMA, MMA athlete, like for most of the year, like they'll be on a regular circadian rhythm like most human beings, but coming up to yeah. a fight, then we need to start adapting to the, the, the time zones they're going to compete in so how, how far out yeah. would you say someone needs you, you said I know you said kind of six weeks are you looking at six to eight weeks is there any research to say that you, uh, like what, how long does it take to get the, your, your circadian clock and train to a different time zone it, 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 that's a good point so yeah all fight season sort of so to speak you don't have to do it but in the training camp we'd say six to eight weeks out mm-hmm. depending on what the variables are so there's travel involved as well I, I think you have to have the conversation at least six to eight weeks out because um, you want to talk about travel you want to talk about the time of the fight. And the other thing as well, which is very interesting with um, in the UFC, for example, is all the media obligations in the week of the yeah, fight as well. Yeah, you have yeah. to account for all of those. And that's something that's not taken into account by a lot of people um, is, is all that work that happens. That's quite draining 
Um, you've got time zone changes. You're sleeping in a new location. You've got a hotel room. You've got all these people coming in and out. You've got all the media, and you're and, trying to cut weight. Like, and the weight cut, yeah. Yeah. And so it's, you know, it's it's a tough week for these guys. And then they got to go in and perform at the end of it. So have the conversation six to eight weeks out with somebody. Look, getting a sleep scientist or someone like myself in to work with an athlete is not going to be every single day. It's probably three to five hours across the camp because you set it up at the start, you check in once or twice, you check in the week of the fight, and that's it. It's not, it's not like you've got to bring on another member of staff to yeah. run around with you. You know what I mean? I, I think, too, what, what sort of, like... I've seen this, this uh, it's a picture like that gets kind of banded about when people start talking about circadian rhythms. And, you know, it's like early mornings, your bowel movement and like early afternoons, best coordination and sort of mid afternoons, best strength. And, you know, then late afternoon, yeah. highest body temperature. And so people look at that and they're like, oh, that, that applies to everyone. I'm like, yeah, but like, so, so it's kind of like, again, like, again, we talk about health reforms here, but I think people look at that and think like that that's rigid and in stone. I'm like, no, if, if, if you give yourself different signals to regulate your, your body, and light being the biggest one, and then temperature, and then other things like social interaction and meal timings, like the timings of all those mechanisms can shift for sure. Like, you know, so uh, it, I think just an important point to take away is that it is trainable. And then if it's trainable, well, then if you are someone who is an MA athlete or a basketball player or somebody who is competing at very, like, like, I suppose to say like just times that aren't really conducive to longevity or a, a, an optimal circadian clock. We were talking about health longevity, but it is trainable to, to, to get your body to produce maximum outputs at the times that you need. So I think it is very, very important that people realize, listen, if you're going to be competing at like eight, nine o'clock at night, it is something you're going to have to think about. Cause again, the one thing that comes to my mind Ian, is like you read any like literature on training. It's like, specificity is like one of the most important principles and it's kind of like you get these guys going like why can't he perform at 8 p.m at night and it's like well because all his training's at like 10 a.m in the morning <laughs> exactly exactly yeah yeah and you're not replicating those conditions you know i'm a big fan of like from a personal note like so if i'm going to go and speak somewhere in a big conference i want to try and get into that room and walk around that room the day before or beforehand when no one's in it mm -hmm. to get a feel of the room to get myself kind of or fair with what that room looks like. So all those kind of practicing of those things, visualizing, getting in, they're all kind of components around performance, albeit not related to sleep, so to speak, but all those kind of same things about getting yourself ready for and getting yourself into the routine. Everything's got to become normal as well. The other thing as well is just on that point about that kind of um, chronobiology kind of circadian rhythm stuff you're talking about hour by hour yes there is a degree of variability left and right of that for everybody mm -hmm. and yes you can push it sort of left and right for everybody however here's a problem robbie people push the envelope so people go well i'm going to just become a nighttime person yeah. because well, i want to do night shift and i can completely flip that to night shift because ian and robbie said you can move it and the actual answer to that is you can't. No, yeah. You can never become a night hour person. Like as in, as in, you can might become an hour chronotype. You like to stay up late and get up late, but you can never adapt yourself to being a night person. And I don't care who's out there or what they say. There is no evidence that you can, unless you live in a cave underground and you control light and dark cycles and never interact with anybody. That's the only way you can do it, because we are diurnal animals. We are meant to be asleep at night and awake yeah. during the day. Yeah. And our biology and cortisol, melatonin, testosterone, all these things are around this. Yes, you can shift them left and right um, along that sort of continuum to a certain degree, but you cannot turn yourself into a, a, a nice um, you know, person 
completely. So that's just a caveat I want to make there because shift workers always argue with me that they're night people and they've adapted their circadian rhythm over 10 years. Meanwhile, they're walking around like a zombie. Yeah, yeah, no, hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, it's it's uh, the point, I, and then you lose that beautifully there. Like again, I don't want to be misinterpreted, and you answer that perfectly. But like, it's like uh, what I was trying to say that, that there is a little bit of variability within within that sort of um, within those circadian regulators, as you said. There's a little bit of wiggle room left or right, but you definitely cannot. Yeah, you definitely cannot change it to be a, a complete night owl. Sure, I think even yeah. it w- wasn't there. There was research where they put people like basically in a cave, and they they even yeah. they're, they're, they even entrained their circadian clock entrained actually to a to almost a perfect twenty four hour cycle. So, like even without like a, a very strong um, light and dark cycle uh, regulation. So that like so the researchers were saying that like this just seems to be so like woven into our physiology that it's like you, you yeah. just can't override it like. Yeah, it's in our base, like iOS operating system. You know, that's how we how we are. Um, so, yeah, but too often you see, Robbie, people want to push the envelope, and I think this is a problem that we have in society today. You know, we spoke before the podcast about problems with the Western world, and and you know, it's great that we have all this technology, and it's great that we're probably being more productive, and GDP has grown in all these countries. But if you look at all these sort of metabolic conditions, and you look at sleep disorders, and you look at type two diabetes, and you know, you would have listened to Matthew Walker and other great scientists talk about this is we've got this issue that we're advancing in one way, but we're sort of like devolving in another way where we're getting all these um, poor health outcomes. You know, I, I was with a company today and everybody at the table was either overweight or unhealthy bar one other person. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I would say 80% were on, were overweight, 10% were really unhealthy and stressed out. And only two people in the room were actually, you know, healthy active individuals so which gets back to your point about being healthy and um healthy and fit and for performance or they can sometimes be opposing opposing goals you know um, it's, and it's, so it's, bringing some balance back can be difficult yeah that's just been a huge topic um a huge topic for me lately because uh like i mean so many people just misconfuse like sport and performance you know or, or sorry i mean sport and health and it's it's a it's an area I've spoken about at length in multiple other podcasts. But again, I mean, the thing is, like, if if the individual who is performing a sport like knows the trade off, like, there's a like like for instance, like I talked to James Fitzgerald from OPEX an awful lot, and you know, he would say like, you know, the elite CrossFit athletes, like, he's like they're definitely decreasing their longevity from what they're doing. But he's like, if you turn around to him and said, listen, you can win like five CrossFit games, but like you probably might take five years off the end of your life. Like all of them be like, I don't give a fuck. I just want to be the best crosser that ever lived. So it just comes down to like priorities. And like, if someone is aware of the trade off, well, then there's no judgment to it. Yeah, totally agree, man. And this is, this is one of the things around sort of uh, biology and human physiology that I often say to people. And I kind of, I've made this comparison before that it's like economics. It depends is the answer always. And uh, yeah. I listen to Andy Galpin, um, I think on Joe Rogan, Andy Galpin said some interesting statements to Joe Rogan, which I laughed out loud because Andy was like, you know, well, what are you trying to achieve? Yeah. And I think Joe was pushing him to go like, oh, what's the best strength and conditioning program? Like, for what? Yeah. And I think that's the problem. We get so obsessed with these magazines, like, you know, like on the perfect six pack, lift these weights, do this thing. And we all want this kind of plug and play system to live our lives by or the plug and play diet, you know, and Danny would have spoken lots about this on his podcast as well. There is no, there is no one solution to fit all. We, we are, we are human beings who are highly variable, uh, highly adaptable, highly changeable. Nothing ever stays the same with us. We are, 
we're evolving beasts, so to speak. And yeah. this idea that we can just, oh, that works for me. This, and, and then people get all preachy about the paleo diet or I swim or I run or I lift this or I do that. You know, it, it's, and it depends also as well on the phase of your life you're in because 18 to 30 is quite different than 30 to 40 yeah. and 40 to 50 is quite different again. So, you know, I listened to a podcast this morning with a, a nutrition guy, um, uh, Walter Longo, I think his name is, and he was talking about like, yeah, it's good to have like low protein up to 65, but after 65, you need to be smashing the protein more or less, you know? So it's not a case of this diet for everything. It's different phases in your life and what's going on. And the same too with sleep and the same too with what you're trying to achieve, what's your work schedule, what's the other factors you may have, um, is there any other sort of uh, diseases you may have or other health issues? So these things have all got to be taken into account and can be quite difficult. And people get quite frustrated um, talking to people like me because they want the one answer. And I'm sorry, but I just can't give it. That's the problem. Yeah, listen, I'm in the same club too because I, like, I, I think anyone who, who, who really is sort of a master in their craft like their most common answer to nearly everything was, well, it depends. Like they always need more context around everything. And just to your point about the people sitting around a table today, like it just, what comes into my head is like common versus normal, you know? So I think people always confuse like common with normal. It's like, well, is it not normal to be like sick? Is it not normal to be overweight when you get older? It's like, no, no, that's common. That isn't normal. Um, yeah. Yeah. So you, you see that all the time too. And yeah, I had Andy recently on the podcast too. He's, he's, he's a good dude too. He's, listen, man, two of us are running a short time here, but I, I'd love to get you back on to speak about um, chrono, like chronotypes within teams. So we spoke yeah. about sort of individual athletes there in terms of MMA. So that's far more controllable. But a huge thing is to like, uh, you know, so you've a team, and both of us are Irish, so we know like about Gaelic football teams, hurling teams, but like I suppose for international listeners, maybe more so like soccer or whatnot. But like you get teams who've got morning or mid or afternoon kickoffs, and then they have like, then they could play like a European Champions League game in the evening where it's 8 p.m. at night. So very different times for the games. And yet yeah. you, you have a group of players who no doubt have different chronotypes. And yeah. then obviously that's going to affect things like the, you know, uh, perception, action, coupling, decision-making processes, even physical output capabilities. So like, that's a huge area I'm really interested in. Like how can we, how would that impact like things like team selection and stuff like that? You know, obviously that would be great information for managers to know that. Well, and then it's kind of at the same time, well, is it not a bit presumptuous to say, well, he will play bad just because he's a, a lark and we're playing in the evening. So then I'm going to pick my L. Like you could even say like, well, is that really true? Okay. Maybe, you know, he is that chronotype, but that doesn't mean necessarily that he's not going to perform well. You know, there's loads of rabbit holes you could go down on that. That's right, yeah. And it also depends on, you know, you can get into other things like team endurance events that go for 72 hours with no sleep. Yeah. Um, and those things then get really pronounced in those. But to answer that question, Robbie, we had something similar with Super Rugby where you did have different chronotypes. And to assess a chronotype, we do some questionnaires first. But then also we look at um, longitudinal data we collect from wrist-worn activity devices. Mm. So... Then from that data, we're able to kind of work out what's going on. And you can really tell with the data. So what we did was um, we had predominantly athletes who were intermediate chronotypes. So they generally like to get up around 7 to 8 um, in the morning. Now, some of those training sessions for those guys were scheduled for half 7, 8 o'clock. So we knew that was early. Yeah. Now, they said they were early people, but that's not actually early. They were intermediate. So one they were completely mischaracterizing their own chronotype. Yeah, yeah. So most of them fell within that, within that chronotype of being intermediate. So what we did then, we said, look, on these days, 
based upon travel and other things and come back from the game. No training is going to start till 10 o'clock. So we're going to train 10 o'clock till 12. We're going to give a lunch break here. We're going to have a short session here. The next day you can train from half nine to 12 o'clock. Then they might be off in the afternoon to do university, media, whatever it might be. The next evening, next day we're going to train from three o'clock till six o'clock in the afternoon. And so we use that then. So we, what we did was we augmented the scheduling uh, based upon the chronotype, the actigraphy data we had, and also using what's called biomathematical modeling. And then we worked out what was the kind of zones. Mm. And so what we said is you can train from like three o'clock to six o'clock. That'll capture everybody. Because there's a degree of variability, mm-hmm. but you want to try and bin, bin everybody into the same group. Now, when it came to game day, to allow for those different chronotypes, we did have strategies around increasing sleep before the game um, <clears throat> by delaying the wake-up time. And a lot of team-based athletes actually are pretty good at this. They will tend to sleep in a lot before the game, yeah. where um, as individual athletes will be the opposite. Individual athletes will have more sleep disturbances before competition, mainly because a lot of the individual sports start earlier in the morning. Team-based sports are in the afternoon or the evening, and they tend to get more sleep. This may also be due to the fact that, you know, as an individual, there's a lot of stress on you, obviously, as an individual. But in a team, it's a team effort, so you might be as stressed about what's going to happen. Now, however, the opposite is true after the game. Team-based, team-based sports have more sleep disturbances after a game mm. because they've, tra- they've played late in the evening. So it's difficult for them not to fall asleep. They've eaten late, which is difficult. And they've probably had a few drinks as well. So it's difficult for them to fall asleep. Whereas individual athletes seem to just crash and burn afterwards. So both, both things, one will have an effect on performance and one will have an effect on recovery. So what we say is with individual athletes leading up to a competition is that don't worry about the night before a competition, worry about the nights before. Yeah. So if you're competing on an early morning swim. So last week I swam on Saturday morning, for example. Friday night, I had a crap night's sleep because here in Western Australia, we get lots of sharks. I was worried about sharks. I had a nightmare about a shark attacking me. I was going to swim my longest ocean swim, three and a half kilometers. I was shitting a brick. I had a bad night's sleep. But on Thursday and Wednesday and Tuesday, I had a good night's sleep. So that sleep bank was able to help override any negative effects. And I had a really good race and I finished and exceeded my time. So, you know, there's that. For team-based athletes then, you know, They've obviously slept well coming into the game, before the game, but now it's the recovery, which may affect the next game, the next week, or if they're traveling across time zones the next day, it may affect their ability to adapt to a new time zone. Yeah, that, that, kind, so, of, that kind of reminds me of, uh, I had Nick Littlehales on the podcast too, you know, who, who, uh, who's another sort of... Um, He's a, he's got himself a sleep coach more so than a sleep researcher, but he worked previously with United and he did some work with the English soccer team and uh, um, he's with the British cycling team. I think he did some work with Arsenal too, but he was similar in that. Like he was trying to get people away from this concept of, oh, if you have one bad night's sleep, that yeah. the next day's ruined. And he'd say, no, no, see sleep over more of a more of a long term process. So like he'd say, over the course of a week. You know, trying we're trying to get about thirty-five hours, but he he would he would say it was he puts them into cycles like five ninety-minute cycles a night. So they would you know that that would accumulate up to like seven and a half hours or something like that. Or yeah, it was seven hours. Sorry, five. Is that right? Ninety-five. Is that am I correct now? Is that seven hours? I think something like that. Um, seven and a half hours. Yeah, seven and a half hours. Yeah. Five. Yeah. I don't. I don't. I don't agree. I don't agree with that, Robbie. By the way. 
oh well, that's well, that could be a conversation then for another day yeah um, and I, I yeah and then maybe on maybe on part two we can get into that a little bit more and um there's also another lady you should look at um amy bender on twitter and instagram she's cool. a sleep and circadian specialist in canada and Amy's written some good posts about the 90-minute variation between people. So we can yeah. talk about that in part yeah. two. Now, in, fairness, in, in fairness, Nick, I did, I did question that. I was like, why this 90-minute cycle? And he, he purely said it is more so just for um, just it's, it's the kind of it was more a convenient thing. Now, obviously, obviously, there is some research out there like on or there was some, you know more than me now, but there, there is this kind of it's in even in Walker's book he spoke with it's roughly like these 90 minute cycles you can go into so that's what Nick was sort of basing off but like he did he did now in fairness in the podcast remember him proclaiming his listen like it was his whole thing was more about habit formation and you know trying to nearly reduce the stress some people had around sleep more so like he 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 wasn't proclaiming like this is a factoring like that so I will just say that on his part yeah yeah but you just yeah, I suppose. But people do say that, Robbie, and I and I suppose as a as a comment on that, and I'm not I'm not picking a battle with anybody, but um, yeah, yeah, it's it it you said the keyword there. It's roughly 90 minutes, so it depends on a lot of different factors that's happening. Of course, um, the age of the people, uh, roughly so roughly 90 minutes, but whatever sleep disorder issues, um, heat. Uh, factors before there's a whole host of issues that goes into those 90 minute cycles and and sort of not always the same and then on top of that we know and you would have heard matt walker probably talk about this in podcasts is that you know if we look at kind of a bell curve that most people are going to fall into the seven to nine hours sleep per night some people may need less but some people may need more yeah. so just saying like five 90 minute cycles for example you know i call it a little bit of bullshit on that and it, it needs to be a bit more um you know it needs to be a bit more in depth and i'm not saying that nick is, nick is not the only guy that said that but other people have said that too i had that in a talk last week i did a talk for a consultancy group um one of the one of the big consultancy groups in the world and they started talking about the 90 minute cycles and i'm like look guys you can't say four minute four 90 minute cycles is gonna be the key here you can't you can't do that you just it's more yeah there's, there's more, more nuance yeah there's more nuance yeah. in fairness nick nick like as i said he wasn't someone who's like this is fact and this is the way it is and oh no peter i because i can remember saying like i was like i don't know if that's fully true and by the way a five 90 minutes cycle to seven and a half hours but like uh <laughs> get his because i was like my fucking matter because i was like four six seven seven and a half but um like uh, i guess the, the one thing i i did like about what he's saying is that he kind of just you know he he, he kind of got it out of people's head that like oh, if you had this one bad night of sleep particularly like if it's the night before the event of course there's going to be a bit of heightened anxiety he's like yeah. more so like listen if you have your sleep in the bank coming into that you'll be fine and then afterwards then we need to get you on the recovery track you know yeah so we need to consider that more so like that that's only going to be more detrimental going forward than the one bad night or the one and even i say bad in air quotations but the one not suboptimal sleep you got the night actually before again as you said it's about, it's about having the sleep in the bank going into it but there, there's two other areas i, I want to talk to you on the next time we talk about um one question I also have, and I still haven't got a good answer from off anyone, and maybe it's because there is just no one knows, is that right? I'm born in Ireland, right? So my circadian entrainment is 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 on the clock here in Ireland, and that's what my body has and my physiology has adapted to. But let's say I pack up now, leave, and I move to Australia, and I li- I live there for the rest of my life. Does my body, like, is my body still always slightly in some way entrained to the Irish circadian? Uh, clock even though is this, a, is this is this a joke question robbie are you trying to catch me here is this a no, joke no are no you serious no it's actually not it's not it's, it's not a joke well, i can tell you now i can tell you now no the answer is no that's complete no 
you will you will fully adapt. If you pack up your bags and you move to Perth, uh, it's an eight-hour time zone. You will be adapted here in eight days, yeah. and you will be on this cycle. You will I, not I, be. And I only ask that because I've heard that. I actually was. I think it was no. Paul. <laughs> Paul checked that said it, but you know Paul like, but I didn't know where he's pulling that from. And I was like, I thought, no, no, that's, that's complete. No, that's one hundred percent bullshit. Now it's not that one there, Robbie. I don't know if someone was pulling your leg on that or what no, went on. I didn't believe no. it. I, I was just like, I heard it's, it. And I was like, I don't think that's no. true. Like, no, I can give you the answer now. It's the very same as as jet lag adaptation. You will adapt to that new time I was zone. That, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. There is zero. Yeah, your brain's not inside going, oh look, I'm on Ireland time here. I wish I had a potato sandwich. No, it ain't happening. It's Complete lies, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. I've had that before. I had a Scottish guy say that to me years ago, and I thought he was taking the piss on me too. But um, no, the answer yeah. is no. You well, I kind of, I kind of want to just put that to bed too, more so. I guess so I was like, oh, that's just that just can't be true at all. And then I told here, you, Robbie. You should be listening to him, lads, in the pub, Robbie. I told you about that. Well, here, oh, hold on. Hey, we spoke about this before online. Don't be uh, making uh, presumptions here. I don't drink either. Look here, that that's a racial comment right there. Presumably well, I didn't drink. say you were drinking in the pub, Robbie. I just said you were in the pub. I didn't say you were drinking. <laughs> I'm only joking with you, but come here. One final I thing: wanna, you fatigue signs. Oh, go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. What are you going to say? say? Maybe, maybe you don't drink, but you might guzzle. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> guzzle. Tell, tell me more about fatigue signs here. What's how did this come about? What's your role there? Uh, let's keep that for part two because I might have some um, uh, have some news probably by then. Oh great, great stuff! Right, well, sure, we have we we have, we have a ton we can speak about then in part two. Listen, this is a this was my my common word lately has been savage. This was a savage podcast. I really appreciate it, and uh, it was great meeting you. You're a fucking legend. So uh, listen, I'll um I'll have everything wrapped up in the show notes. This probably won't be out though till the end of January, maybe because I have a ton of fucking other podcasts to put out and edit on. But we can get our part two in next month, no problem. That, that's all right. Well, if you want to do the part two and then just join it out and put it out as one episode, you can do that. I'll release them just back to back. We can do that. Yeah, um, sweet, sweet. So I'm around. If you want to send me some times, I can um, I can make myself available. Probably the earlier, the better. In January, Robbie, the better. Um, Great. So if we maybe around the set the week of the seventh. Yeah, oh, that's perfect. It suits me. I'll I'll, surely, I'll probably send you something. Uh, what are we Wednesday? I'll send you something probably Thursday or Friday. We haven't even finished the podcast here yet. People are still listening to this part because they don't edit this shit out. Anyway, people who yeah. are listening, you're spoiled, spoiled rotten with all this information I bring to your earbuds every week. Uh, well, look, uh, before you before you do spoil them rotten um, with the next episode tell them to head over there to sleep4performance4.com.au to the website there's plenty of blogs on there more um, stuff about and the other guys you can access all the podcasts there we've just revamped the website so please go over and use it there's a free book there on managing sleep and jet lag download that as well we're going to have some more content up there next Sweet. year we've got more blogs coming out the ambassadors are going to be writing blogs. The ambassadors are coming onto the podcast. There's heaps of heaps and heaps of free shit over there that you can go and consume. Um, yeah, so go for it. <laughs> <laughs> I love the way you said. I love the way you said free shit, and then you then you said consume. I was like, I don't think people are going to consume shit. But anyway, <laughs> bad thing. Listen, uh, I'm just going to wrap up here real quick and I say goodbye to offline. So all the listeners, goodbye. See you soon. Take care.